I feel like the quarterback that the kickoff team, the runner ran all the way down and he's on the one yard line. And I get to be the quarterback to punch it in, right? So today, there's been a lot of preaching going on already, right? And I just have to warn everybody, if you happen to be a visitor here, I'm known as a serious pastor. So I hope, I hope you can be serious because I over the top serious. Wanted to take some time and talk about wholehearted worship today. Oftentimes there's a somewhat of a disconnect between the distance between what we know and what we feel and do, right? Today is a, a day that we can talk about how to gap that distance and why that distance is so hard, but yet able by the power of God to be gapped and change our life. So as we begin, I would like to just ask the Lord to bless our time. Please join me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Literally, the gospel message has been preached multiple times over. Thank you that in baptism we see the gospel and people speaking out their profession of faith and confession to you as being their Lord and Savior, we see the gospel, we see the truth. Lord, we ask that as I continue that vein, that it would be your spirit that speaks and teaches. Thank you, Jesus. We agree to end this. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to start with a question. What shapes you? What shapes you? You know, I'm, I'm the youngest of uh, seven Children, five boys in my family. Sometimes I have a broken nose. That shaped me. Brothers, shape your face a little bit sometimes. My mom died when I was a baby, 18 months old. I was raised by my grandmother. So that shapes me. I met Christ as an 18-year-old, and that, that shapes me and has shaped my life what shapes you? We want to talk today and follow part of a conversation that Jesus has with uh, the woman at the well is what it's usually called. It's a, uh, she's a Samaritan woman coming at a time when respectable women shouldn't be coming. So she's a woman, Samaritan, and uh, probably a woman with not a very good reputation. But Jesus teaches her a whole lot. And it's good because she has some inkling about what worship is about. But Jesus wants to teach us four things about worship. Where we worship, who we worship, what we worship, and why we worship. Sounds like a lot, but we'll get to it. Super Bolt awaiting. So let's just jump in. Where are we to worship? In John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, they have a discussion about where to worship. You see, Jesus had asked, this is a half of a conversation. It's good for our worship conversation, but he was talking to her about some other things and she got a little uncomfortable. So she went with what we normally do. If it's a little too personal, we go philosophic. 
So she goes philosophic and says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, <coughs> Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. Jesus is basically saying, I'm not endorsing any location. Right now in my life, it, there's a pivot point and it's changing. So you see, God had been working through the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, and the local spot for worship was in the temple. But Jesus says there's time coming. Very quickly, I would say within... A few years of this conversation, everything will change. You see, in the, the death of Jesus, there was a big curtain. They say it was like a foot or 18 inches thick that was torn top to bottom by God's hand himself when Jesus died on a cross. Open up the place of worship. And now every place that, that there is a believer who lifts up the name of Jesus is a place of worship. When I went to the Dominican Republic, I went to a number of churches. It took four different visits to get to what we would call a church. Went to the first place, I had a baptisms. Five people got baptized. They were worshiping by singing and praying and giving testimony. And it was in a dirt, muddy road. And they interviewed the, the missionaries and they said, well, where's your church? And then she pointed this direction. She said, see that tall tree? That's where we worship. Anywhere. The second place was a half of a, a patio. Third place was a pastor's house that he'd given for worship and went and built another house. The fourth place was what we would call a church. Had a pointed thing, a little cross on it. We can worship anywhere. It is about honoring Christ. The second is the Who? They continue their conversation. Verse 22 goes on to talk about where are the who of worship. He said, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It's a very important little part that you wouldn't necessarily catch in the English. When he said you, he was using a plural meaning you as a group of people. And when he said we, he was talking about the Jewish people. The, the plurals are very important. It's an assumption that Jesus is making that there is a corporate or a covenantal nature to worship. And he was establishing or at least restating the fact that people of faith are people who are in community. Now we can worship individually but we are in community with those fellow believers. This gathering is essential to worship. C.S. Lewis had a quote that I want to share because it helps us understand why this is essential. In each of my friends, there is a something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, one of his friends, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, 
Now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. We possess each friend, not less, but more as the number of those whom we share him increases. He's talking about Ronald, who's J.R.R. Tolkien. They were friends, if you're a Tolkien fan like I am. But he makes a point that friends bring out facets of personalities that only that friend can bring out. How much more of the exquisitely, phenomenally, beyond measure God? You see, I'm blessed by the way you worship God. I learned something about who God is because how God has touched your life. You bring facets of God, not because God changes, but because God reflects through you. So corporate worship together in this setting is very important. Corporate worship and walking together like in a small group is important. To live with other Christians is important. The we is important. But he goes on and he continues in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For Father, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is changing the category of who the true worshipers are. It's no longer the Jewish person or even the Samaritan or any person It is every person. You see, in a few minutes, that Samaritan woman would become a true worshiper. She would go and get her whole town, and they will become true worshipers because they worship God, and they put him on the throne of their lives, and whoever does that is a true worshiper. And God is seeking. Don't miss this. God is far more interested in seeking that person that's far from him than you could ever be. That person that annoys you, that person that tells you to your face there is no God, God is seeking them. And one day, he sought you. Right? And when you wake up in the morning, you look and you say, I was important enough that God sought me. And then all that Jesus did, he did for me. And he wants me to be worshiping him. He's overjoyed that you and billions of other people are worshiping God. So let's go on to the what. Verse 24, Jesus continues to talk and teach. He says this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He said that in verse 23, that spirit and truth, simply put, might be just heart and head. We worship God with all of who we are. And if you're reading along, following along, watching the videos with the the Harneys in our small groups, they said that wholehearted worship is a lifestyle. 
It takes all of us to worship God. We won't turn to it. We'll just stay right here in, in this passage. But in Psalm 95, give you a little homework. Go read that later today. You'll see what parts of us are part of worship. The first two verses talk about having joyful worship, making a joyful noise. You know that person next to you can't carry a tune in a bucket, but they're making a joyful noise. That's awesome. We might be a little annoyed. We might sing a little off key if you're like me. I have to move closer to the person that's singing on key. I'm a little annoyed, but God isn't. If it's joyful and it's loud, and you raise your hand, you do whatever, don't raise your hand, don't care. But it's our emotions. Part of worship is our emotions. Psalm 95, it goes through and Verses three to five talk about who God is. He's creator, that he's awesome, that he's lifted up. We are engaging our mind. If I have emotion in worship, have I really worshiped? Not completely. If I engage my mind and I know who God is, we worship like one member of the teaching team said, we worship the true God. There is a true God and we worship him. We need to know about him. We need to know the truth. That's important. Doctrine is important. But if I have my emotions, you know, some people say, oh, I've done church today, you know, got motion. Oh, others will say, man, I, I, I was learned new things, so I, I, I had a firm beliefs. If I have my emotions and beliefs, have I fully worshiped? There's one more very important part. In verse six and following, Talks about another thing. Verse six says, I bow my knee to you. If worship does not involve surrender, we sang that song, I surrender. I surrender all. Not exactly an American anthem. We love being independent. We love to be self-doers, right? But if we don't surrender our will, have we truly worshiped? It takes all of us. That is the elements of who we are on the inside. Our emotions, our mind, and our will. Worship is a lifestyle. You worship God wherever you are. And how, what you, however you think, decide, feel, speak, and do. What worship is is a lifestyle that lifts up God. And the last thing we want to talk about today is why. Jesus goes on to interact with the woman again. She says, the woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says something that he doesn't say very often to a Samaritan woman that doesn't have a very good reputation, he tells her this. Jesus said to her, I who speak am he. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah, he says to her. The why is all about Jesus. Because the one that was speaking to this woman was the one that was going to change worship forever. 
because he was going to be the avenue by which the new worshipers of spirit and truth would be entering into that worship of God. There was an analogy that I, I learned from Tim Keller. If you don't know Tim Keller, he's really smart. He said, back in the day, worship came from two words, worth and shape. That if you worship something, you give it worth and it shapes you. He told a, an illustration about a woman who had inherited a, a brooch from her mom who had passed away and was sentimental to her, but it wasn't anything more than that to her. She put it on her bureau and then it got covered up, fell behind, she found it again, just had it for years, never thought much about it. One day she takes it to a jeweler just wondering what it would be worth. The jeweler looks at it, puts it in his little eyepiece and looks at it, eyes widen, he looks at it some more, gets a, a bigger eyepiece, starts looking at it and he's just, he's just overwhelmed. He's like, wow. Uh, hey, can I keep this for a little bit, he says. Uh, I want to look and, and just kind of investigate before I, I tell you what the value is. He says, sure. So he looks at it. He examines it all the more. He talks to some of his jeweler friends. He looks it up online and gets, gets all the information. And what he found out is that this brooch was an, a phenomenally expensive piece of jewelry, worth more than all the proceeds of his business for 40 years. He's astonished. He was telling everybody about it and how wonderful this is. And then he got robbed. No, that's not part of the story. <laughs> I tell, that's, that's, that's terrible, right? So now he finds out exactly what this piece is and he gets to tell the good news to the woman who owns the piece. She comes in, he tells her how expensive and beautiful and what the history is of this piece and how valuable it is and how wonderful it is that, that you have this beautiful piece. You see, the value of that piece changed the jeweler's life, changed the woman's life because of the extraordinary value of the peace. When we talk about the, this English word, worship, that it's worth shape, that that's the essence of what worship is. Jesus said, where your treasury is, so your heart will be also. What you value will shape you if we followed you around, we wouldn't need to look and ask you, hey, uh, you know, what are your influences in life? What shapes you? We would know. How you run business, how you interact with your kids, what you do with your language, thoughts, and deeds. You can't see the thoughts, but, you know, we know what's shaping you. And there's a lot of things trying to squeeze us into a mold so what shapes you? Worship is about worth shape. There's two reasons that Jesus should be the center of our 
our worship. First of all is, it's kind of an objective. Everybody should agree on this. He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. If you read Philippians 2, it tells exactly what Jesus did, leaving the fellowship of the Father and and Spirit, coming to earth, dying on a cross, living a perfect life, dying a criminal's death, undeserved for you and me. Being resurrected, and at the end it says exactly this, that his name was raised above all names, any power and authority, his name is above. The highest place, Jesus is worthy, objectively, he's just worthy of it. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Choice or not choice, he is the highest authority. He is God eternal. Amen? He's worth it. That should shape you. But yet, there's a subjective reason. There's a personal reason. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, talk about something. It says, just the right time. Jesus says the time is coming. At just the right time. Jesus says now the time has come. Worship's changing. At just the right time, Romans 5 tells us that God, that Jesus Christ died for sinners. At just the right time, long before any sinners cared about who Jesus was, long before there was a church, there were people who worshiped him long before when almost every person was in rebellion to God. Christ died for sinners. So there is a personal reason. There is a reason that our emotions and our minds and our wills should be because we want to subjected to the king. I will tell you that what you value more than anything else will shape you the most. What Christ wants and then God was seeking when he's seeking worshipers in, in spirit and truth is people that will put Jesus on the throne of their lives and live everything else as an extension of that. You think about what Jesus did. Is he worth it? Is he worth it to you? Well, let that worth shape your life. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, you put a value on us that before you, you kept your objective worship of God, but yet also you kept us in mind. You went to the cross with us in mind. You 
endured the cross for the joy of honoring your father and winning worshipers to you. I pray, Lord, that in my life that that worth would grow daily and for my brothers and sisters here. That your worth would grow daily in us. That it would expand our hearts in all of those facets in ways to submit our lives to you, to worship you in all that we do. We give you thanks and praise. And we can pray all this because of you, Jesus, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.